1: Hello and welcome back to another Hindu Studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about my background at rajbalkharan.com slash academia. More importantly, I'm speaking with Anway Mukupadhyay, who is currently in West Bengal at the University of Burdwan on his uh, very interesting book, The Goddess in Hindu Tantric Traditions, Devi as Corpse. Anway, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank
0: you so much, Raj, uh, for inviting me here, and it would be great to share my thoughts
1: with you and also with the, I mean, with the people who listen to this. So, tell us how you tell us the origins of this book. How did you start this project?
0: Now, uh, you know, actually, it uh, uh, has a very interesting origin. Uh, The idea originated with me while I was in Varanasi. Actually, I was teaching at Varanasi University at that point of time in 2016. So uh, suddenly this idea uh, occurred to me and I uh, suddenly thought that I could do something about uh, the devias corpse, which was a very striking kind of idea to me. Right. I mean, it was a kind of paradox, a living paradox. So while uh, the goddess is always seen as uh, as metonymic of life, as related to Lalitdhar, as related to the earth, etc. Uh, in the Hindu tantric traditions, we have this figuration, this very peculiar figuration of the goddess as uh, as not just death, death in the metaphysical sense, in the conceptual abstract sense, but also in the sense of uh, a concrete corpse, particularly in the case of the myth of Shiva and Sati, uh, as it has been ramified in the Tantric traditions of Eastern India in particular. For instance, if you think about the mainstream texts of, um, uh, I mean, the mainstream Puranic texts which talk about Shiva and Sati, that myth. Uh, this Satipita myth is not actually there. Like you know, the creation of the Satipitas where Sati's uh, limbs fall and then the Satipitas emerge, this kind of story is not there. But when we think about the medieval tantric texts coming from these parts of India, we come upon this particular narrative of uh, the creation of the Satipitas and it becomes a, a kind of central narrative unit as far as the tantrically inflected Puranas uh, coming from the eastern parts of India are concerned. For instance, if you think about the Upa Upapurana, the Kalika Purana, or uh, the Bhyad Purana, and in fact much of the ritualistic and uh, sort of devotional uh, approach to, to the goddess, particularly in Bengal, in Assam, in Orissa also to some extent, uh, as far as that is concerned, uh, there is a huge influence of this Texts on the on the Devi worshipping uh, sort of general public and also on the sadhakas, I mean, the spiritual aspirants so who are working within the frame of uh, uh, tantric Shaktism. Uh, at that point of time, uh, I mean, in Vanaras, I couldn't finish uh, this project. In fact, I couldn't uh, n- n- embark on this project at all because I was writing another book at that point of time that was also on Goddess Spirituality, but that was a very different kind of book. Uh, but while uh, I uh, was uh, working at uh, Bodhman, I mean, immediately after coming back from Varanasi to uh, Badhman, this place in West Bengal, which also happens to be one of the sort of central places where this tantric shaktism uh, developed and this uh, sort of uh, uh, satipita-oriented myth uh, uh, developed, I. Here, I mean, after coming back to West Bengal, I began to think about this idea, uh, in a, in a kind of, uh, new way. And um, uh, in fact, while I was in Varanasi, yeah, I was thinking a lot about this sort of uh, coterminousness of life and death, how they become coextensive in the ritualistic sort of domain of Varanasi. For instance, Varanasi is called a Mahashvashana. So it, it's the great uh, crematorium, uh, but that becomes enlivened by the presence of the Devi along with Shiva. And then it becomes the Anandakanana of Shiva. Uh, however, when I started working on this set image, I, I I was struck by certain central paradoxes. You know, for instance, this uh, this very interesting idea that uh, that the baby who is uh, who is the eternal, absolute, metaphysical entity? Because as far as the Eastern Tantric Shaktism is concerned, I mean, the Tantric Shaktism of Eastern India is concerned, uh, the Devi is not just uh, the Shakti of the Absolute. Rather, Devi is the Absolute as well as the Shakti. Thereof Now, uh, within this kind of uh, theological framework, how do you account for the idea of Devi as corpse? I mean, the corpse would apparently indicate pure materiality, you know, there, there is no scope for spirituality there, as it were, you know, it's totally beyond the domain of spirituality. As it were, it belongs to the domain of materiality and pure corporeality, which is absolutely Delinked from the spirit. But at the same time, we have to recall that uh, this Devi, I mean, who is apparently dying, and I would like to put the term dying within corpse" because uh, because it, it's a central paradox as far as sh- tantric shaktism is concerned, because the Devi is uh, immortal, right? I mean, she is eternal. And at the same time, her corpse becomes the, the sort of uh, center of a very new kind of goddess spirituality where uh, her corpse and uh, the parts thereof are are absolutely important for the spiritual sadhana. So there, as it were, the, the bodily aspect of Devi's corpse is as important as the spiritual aspect of Devi in her transcendent form. So, so, this paradox uh, was exactly what I, uh, I start off from. And um, in fact, while working on this project, I was uh, continuously responding to a lot of central paradoxes within this, uh, this theological framework, because here, theological, or if you wish, a kind of theological framework. Uh, uh, now, the interesting point is that when we think about Devi as cops, the first problem is that here uh, we have uh, an apparently incommensurable kind of, uh, you know, uh, difference between Devi as pure transcendence and Devi as cops. But somehow the tantric Shaivism of Eastern India seeks to wed these two apparently uh, sort of discordant ideas uh, together, and it also seeks to foreground the possibility of a kind of heroic amalgamation of Devi as pure transcendence, uh, Devi as uh, Brahman, and Devi as cops you know. So so it, it it was not just a kind of philosophical interest, but it was also a kind of, uh, mm, you know, a poetic interest in this uh, central paradox of country. Czechism. and in fact i was uh, thinking about uh, the metaphysical poets you know how they were sort of wedding uh, to absolutely different and uh, and oppositional ideas and how they were uh, sort of amalgamating ideas which uh, which seemed uh, absolutely unconnected disconnected so this uh, this kind of uh, theological paradox uh, which i saw embodied in the figure of uh, the devias corpse, uh, was what i was primarily interested in and and that was how uh, uh, this project came into being i mean that that was how it originated
1: you know Okay, so there's uh, obviously a rich amount of information there. Um, let us uh, let us break it down a little bit for the sake of our listenership, some of whom might be specialists in Hinduism and quite well read, and some of whom may be um, maybe uh, educated public, interested public um, who may not have some other background. So let's maybe take a. Uh, Take the how you say the 3,000 foot view of the work. There's many things you mentioned and allude to that maybe we can unpack. I'll mention a couple of them, then we can dig into them. The first thing, the first thing let's do um, for our audience is talk a little bit about. Tantric traditions and the use of corpses. You obviously take it for granted because you're, you're well-versed in the material, but this is a, a highly intriguing, uh, possibly subversive, uh, at very least unconventional method of, of religiosity. Um, and another thing I'd like you to, to unpack and even even relay is the myth of sati. It's a very, very common, powerful um, um, mythological entity uh, that really feeds into your thesis very well. You have a chapter on it, as a matter of fact. So talk about the religiosity of corpses, and then perhaps tell us, uh, relay for us uh, the myth of Sati, if you, if you may.
0: So I think it would be better for me to uh, to sort of uh, begin with the myth of Sati, because then it would be perfect. Uh, in, yes. Yeah, to discuss the concept of various corpse in the larger context of the corpse-related spirituality. In, uh, even better. The, yeah. So now the interesting point is that when we look at the myth of Sati, the central myth is like this, that uh, uh, Sati uh, was an uh, incarnation of the great goddess on earth. And particularly the Shakta Tantric traditions focus on this uh, this idea of Sati being not just a mortal woman, but rather the human incarnation of uh, the goddess, human avatar of the great goddess. Uh, and then she uh, uh, was desirous of, uh, sort of, of getting Shiva as her husband. And Daksha, her father, in spite of some uh, kind of reservation on his part, uh, consented to, to sort of marry her off to Shiva. And Brahma intervened, and uh, Daksha married uh, Sati off to Shiva. But after that, uh, Daksha developed a deep-seated uh, sort of antipathy towards Shiva, and uh, he began to denounce Shiva in in the uh, in the public ceremonies uh, of worship of yajnas and so on and so forth. At one point of time, Daksha uh, arranged a great yajna, a great fire sacrifice, and uh, everyone in the earth, uh, I mean, including the different uh, kinds of beings like uh, you know the siddhas, gandharvas, the gods and goddesses, uh, everyone was invited except Shiva and. Sati. Uh, on hearing this, uh, Sati was uh, deeply uh, uh, sort of uh, shocked, and she uh, wanted to go to that fire sacrifice, that great ceremony arranged by her father. She asked uh, Shiva to permit her. To go there, uh, but uh, no, Shiva was unwilling to permit her to go to that great sacrifice. Now, here I have to mention that as far as this central myth of Shiva and Sati is concerned, which is common to many Puranic texts uh, and uh, many epical texts as well. So, as far as this myth is concerned, it's a very, uh, very common and widely sort of circulated myth in the Indian subcontinent. But uh, there are textual variations and uh, sort of narrative variations as far as the different texts are concerned. For instance, uh, in the Shiva Purana, you, uh, you don't have the, uh, the story, I mean, or rather the narrative that Sati is showing Shiva her terrible form. So when Shiva doesn't permit her to go to Daksha's uh, uh, fast sacrifice. But in the uh, Shakta Puranas, uh, that is to say the Puranas, the Puranic texts, which focus on Shakti as the central deity or uh, Devi as the central deity. In those texts, we have the the uh, appearance of the terrible forms, the Dasha Mahavidya forms, the great uh, uh, knowledge forms, or the great Mahavidya forms of Devi, uh, when she becomes enraged on uh, on uh, seeing her husband reluctant to let her go to Daksha's fire sacrifice. Uh, after seeing these terrible forms of Sati, uh, which, which are really uh, a shock to Shiva because he is not acquainted with these terrible forms. So he uh, knows only this uh, this sweet wife, Sati. So after seeing these terrible forms, so he becomes frightened and he allows Sati to to go to uh, Daksha's fire sacrifice. After going to the fire sacrifice of Daksha, she uh, she uh, sees a very. I mean, she finds herself in a very problematic situation because. On seeing her, Daksha begins to denounce Shiva publicly. And all the devas, all the, I mean, all the gods and goddesses are assembled there. But uh, uh, in that assembly, that great assembly, uh, Daksha begins to openly uh, uh, deny Shiva. So Sati becomes enraged and uh, Sati curses Daksha. This is a particular textual variation, which we find in the Shakta Puranas. So here we find uh, Sati, Karsing Daksha, and then particularly in the Mahabhagavata upapurana, there is this story that uh, Sati uh, creates a chaya Sati or a shad- shadow form out of her own body, and then she disappears, asking this shadow of ours to uh, to enter the the fire that has been uh, sort of uh, kindled for the sacrifice. So uh, that chaya Sati or the shadows of Sati enters the Yajnakunda and then hard uh, body is uh, sort of, hard uh, body turns into a corpse. It's a charred corpse. So uh, on hearing about the tragic event of uh, Sati's death, uh, I mean, again, I will put death within quotes now, after the great assembly of Daksha's uh, sort of uh, fast sacrifice. On hearing about this, Shiva, along with his attendants, who are at this point of time very ferocious, because they are angry that Sati is dead, so Shiva comes to uh, Daksha's place and he uh, sort of uh, destroys the entire fire sacrifice and also beheads Daksha. Now there are slight textual variations as far as the different, uh, I mean the different Puranas are concerned. For instance, in Certain Purana's uh, sati doesn't create the chaya sati, but rather she leaves her body through a yogic kriya, etc., etc. So I, I have detailed all those differences, all those variations in my book. And, uh, but the interesting point that after uh, this, uh, this particular event of uh, the destruction of Dakshas Yajna. Uh, we have another very important narrative unit in the Shiva myth, particularly in the uh, in the uh, texts which we uh, find uh, prevalent in the eastern parts of India. Uh, that is uh, the creation of the. Peters. So uh, the idea is that after uh, seeing uh, his wife uh, lying dead uh, in the uh, in the uh, I mean uh, in the palace of uh, Daksha, Shiva uh, uh, becomes uh, um, uh, I mean hugely aggrieved, and he uh, takes Sati's corpse on his head, or in some Puranas it's uh, said that he takes. Uh, set his corpse on his shoulders and then he begins to roam the entire world and he also begins to dance so it's a kind of destructive dance and uh, Vishnu is afraid uh, of the terrible uh, sort of consequences of this dance because he thinks that the entire universe may be jeopardized the stability of the entire universe may be jeopardized if uh, Shiva continues with this dance of his. so he cuts off the the body of sati into different pieces and all these different pieces fall on 51 places on the earth. And uh, in these 51 places, uh, the great satipitas are, uh, 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 I mean, the great satipitas are constituted. The interesting thing is that when uh, we... uh, look at this story critically, we find that uh, here is uh, this particular shift from the mainstream narratives of Shiva Sati Middha to the sort Tantric of reconfigurations of and the same, uh, particularly in that uh, we have in, in this context, in the Shaktu Tantric context, we have a very significant uh, amount of Emphasis uh, being placed on uh, this this apparently apocryphal portion of the story that is to say the creation of the Satipitas. Now the creation of the Satipitas is not there as far as the sort of uh, I mean the mainstream um, uh, configurations of the myth are concerned. Uh, it's it's a particularly uh, eastern Indian uh, sort of um, uh, addition. To this meat, but interestingly, this uh, this particular portion of this meat about the creation of the Satipithas becomes central to the mode of Shakti Tantric spirituality which we find in Eastern India because in Eastern India in most uh, cases we'll find that the Tantric Sadhakas are visiting these places, these Shakti Pithas, though I will not say that the Shakti Pithas are uh, confined only to the, the geocultural location of Eastern India. For instance, in Northern India, in Southern India too, you have Certain uh, uh, shaktipatas, and and there is a, a long-standing ambiguity. There is a perennial sort of um, trouble uh, as far as uh, the exact location of uh, of I mean the exact locations of these shaktipatas are concerned. But the point is that when we look at uh, that particular tantric mode of spirituality, which focuses on the visit of the Sadhaka, the spiritual aspirant within the Shakta Tantric framework, his visit to these places, because these places are supposed to be specially filled with the energy of the Devi, you know, so they are special places, as it were, they are not like any other temple of the goddess.
1: So, regarding this myth um, of Sati, um, could you uh, relay for our audience your use of it uh, in your book? in terms of the ultimate argument you're making.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I basically focused on this uh, this myth uh, now with reference to a larger spectrum of corpse-oriented spirituality in Tantric Shaktism. Now, in the Tantric traditions, the corpse is often seen as a central uh, metaphor for spiritual father For instance, if you think about the agharis of Banaras. Jonathan Perry has worked on them. And uh, in the agharis or in some other sort of uh, left hand or the Bhamachari traditions of Tantra, you have this arcane focus on the corpse. Even there is this ritual practice of necrophagy in uh, in uh, Banaras as far as the agharis are concerned. But again, the interesting point is that whereas in the Shiva-centric Tantric sadhanas, the corpse would be seen in a particular way, like you know, an inert corpse. So that is uh, that is uh, uh, linked to the idea of the nirguna Brahman or the unqualified Brahman. Uh, in the Shakta tantric traditions, this configuration of the corpse is very different. I mean, the configuration of the corpse would involve the idea of an active corpse. That is to say the limbs of baby corpse, which are uh, there in all these pictures, uh, they are, uh, as it were, always throbbing with life energy. They are not just dead and they are not a nirguna or unqualified or inert either. Secondly, whereas Shiva as corpse, because that is also a very important idea as far as uh, shaktism is concerned. For instance, we all know about the, uh, the image of Kali, where uh, you have Shiva lying as a corpse under her feet. And she is uh, the representation of a very uh, dynamic energy, a very dynamic um, uh, female energy. Uh, so that is there. But as far as Debbie herself is configured as a corpse, uh, the entire connotation of the corpse gets altered. So here the corpse, as it were, becomes an active corpse. Even in its corpse-like state, it is not wholly inert. It is not, uh, uh, as it were, you know, it is not wholly dead. Now, so there is some, uh, some something paradoxical about Devi as corpse. Whereas when we think about Shiva as corpse or Shiva configured as a corpse, we don't find a similar kind of paradox. There, Shiva is likened to a corpse in terms of the general connotation of a corpse. But as far as Devi as corpse is concerned, we find Devi's corpse Peculiarly active, because the moment you touch uh, the limb of uh, Devi's corpse in, in any of these uh, Shakti uh you are supposed uh, to be energized, you know. So it's not just about uh, a spiritual energy, it's even uh, about um, uh, the material energy uh, or the occult energy that is required for, for voga, not just for moksha, but also for voga. But the material and earthly enjoyments. So uh, I think that is uh, very interesting. I mean, as far as this difference between Shiva as corpse and Devi as corpse is concerned, because in the existing body of literature on this issue, I have found uh, uh, mainly a focus on Shiva as corpse, not exactly uh, on Devi as corpse. You know? So that's why I uh, took up this particular issue.
1: Well, it's a fascinating paradox. This asymmetry of um, Shiva being truly inactive as a corpse versus Devi somehow, the goddess somehow, nevertheless being active, um, even in her aspect as a dismembered corpse. Um, what what would you say the main takeaway uh, of this work is? What would you like readers to to most? What would you like to most impress upon your readers?
0: You know, I think there are two or three things which uh, which might uh, seem uh, quite uh, interesting and um, and original to the readers. One is this uh, this very idea that uh, uh, the the Peters can be brought into our philosophical framework. You know. As far as the uh, Shakta Tantric traditions of Eastern India are concerned, we don't find a very large, solid or well-organized corpus of philosophical writing or philosophical discourses about this. As we all know, as far as the Kashmir Shaivite traditions of Tantra are concerned, or as far as the Shrividya traditions of South India are concerned, we have a very uh, well-organized philosophical tradition. For instance, when we think about the Shrividya traditions, we don't just think about rituals, you know we do think about the very uh, very sophisticated philosophical tradition which is associated with the, the ritual practices of Sri The same is uh, the case with uh, the Shaivism. For instance, as far as Kashmir country is concerned, we find uh, a well-organized kind of um, you know, philosophical tradition. But as far as the Eastern Indian traditions are concerned, we find that there is mostly a focus on the rituals. So basically the approach of the scholars to these uh, these traditions has been a kind of ethnographic approach, you know, not so much uh, a philosophical approach. So I tried to sort of bridge this gap, this apparent gap between ethnography and philosophy as far as the tantric traditions of Eastern India are concerned. Because uh, it seemed to me that here what was being done is, uh, I mean, uh, actually people were practicing something, people were exercising something which they believed in. So they were probably setting uh, in motion uh, a kind of uh, philosophy of life which is uh, more practical, which is oriented towards a more practical kind of enlightenment than simply a theoretical kind of enlightenment. For instance, if you think about the Shava Sadhana, and I think one of the uh, the very uh, very important points uh, of this book is this, uh, this connection that I have sought to make between Sati as corps or Devi as corpse, that central motif in Tantric Shaktism in Eastern India, and the idea of Shava Sadhana or the corpse rituals. Now, there have been works on corpse rituals, for instance, June McDaniel has worked on uh, cops rituals in Bengal. She has interviewed a lot of practitioners uh, uh, in Calcutta and also in the other parts of West Bengal. Uh, but uh, the point is that uh, the connection that we can make between uh, this this very new uh, Puranic reconfiguration of the Sati myth in terms of uh, 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 a focus, a central focus on the of devias corpse, the connection that we can make between this trope of devias corpse and the shavasadhana, the Shava-centric, the corpse-centric spirituality. And another interesting thing is that when we look at the uh, the, uh, the folk uh, narratives about shavasadhana or the or uh, the narratives which come from the uh, the practitioners themselves, we, we basically find that they are uh, they are uh, experiencing something which is momentous. For instance, at the moment of uh, the uh, the sort of uh, the success of this sadhana, probably uh, the goddess would appear to them through the shava, through the corpse and the corpse would suddenly begin to speak. There is one uh, narrative where it is said that the corpse which was used in this shava, in the shava sadhana uh, was uh, um, re-energized with the energy of life. By God, by the goddess, and that corpse came to came back to life. You know, so it it was enlivened uh, through David's grace. Now the interesting point is that at the material level this kind of uh, this kind of enlightenment regarding the connection the the uh, the connection between death and life death being not a closure to life but rather a new entry to to another form of life now this kind of idea is what i have tried to uh, underline in my work and I have also associated this idea of uh, the fragmentation of Davis corpse with, with a kind of uh, deconstructivist approach to the idea of uh, the human self. I have argued that Through the dismemberment of uh, the corpse of Sati and also through Shiva's decision to to live along with Devi in all these pictures in his linga forms or in his vaidava forms, through this process, uh, the self is being presented as essentially multiple and not singular. You know, So I, I have also uh, done a little bit of analysis of the rhetoric of the Peter Ninaya, the very famous text regarding the uh, Sati where I have uh, tried to decode the rhetoric used by Devi, where she talks about her body as a singular body at one point of time. And then she goes on to talk about her body in terms of the uh, the fragmented limbs. Uh, and then she also talks about her multiplicitous existence uh, in in all these beaters. So that is another uh, sort of theoretical intervention which I have sought to make. And uh, finally I have also focused on another issue that is the connection between between the fragmented corpse of Sati and the Vishwarupa of Devi. You know, I, I think this kind of connection has not been made earlier. What I have argued here is that uh, in Devi's cosmic form, we have the dissolution of the borders of the body, because in a way, following Meritocles, we can uh, see the body as being constituted essentially by its borders, not by uh, any internal essence, by, but by its borders. So the body itself is, is a metaphor uh, for a bordered mode of being. Now, uh, when the border is dissolved, particularly in the context of the fragmentation of uh, the copse of sati, we find uh, the journey of the body towards a a, a kind of borderless body, you know? Uh, Again, another kind of paradox. And uh, the same thing is what we find in the idea of Devi's Vishwarupa, where again, it's a borderless body because uh, this entire cosmos uh, is being presented as Devi's body, but it's not um, being presented as a totality uh, in the conventional sense of the term, but rather it's being presented as a kind of uh, Uh, endless uh, plurality, endless uh, plenitude of being. And uh, I have also associated this idea with uh, Adriana Cavarero's sort of uh, approach to the uh, issue of death. She says that uh, as far as death is concerned, we have an individuated um, kind of idea of death. So the moment a person dies, we believe that that person's life has become negated. But if we shift our gaze from this individuated discourse of, uh, or rather this individualistic discourse of death, to a more uh, sort of uh, ecologically holistic approach to the issue of death, then we can probably say that through this process of death, one life form gets transformed into another life form and thereby one life form is getting dissolved in the perennial flow of life itself. Now, I found this idea very interesting and I found uh, this idea uh, sort of uh, absolutely uh, applicable to to my own uh, project of uh, looking at this uh, trope of Devia's corpse and uh, that's why I I wedded sort of this Kavarian, uh, theory, to the tantric epistemology of the body. And I tried to look at the body, particularly with reference to the dismemberment motive, you know, I mean, the dismemberment of uh, Devi's corpse. Uh, with reference to that, I tried to focus on this issue of dissolving the borders of the body, which is also very important as far as the tantras are concerned
1: so the cosmic form of the devi the supreme devi is not just the one and many not she's not just the one and the many she's also the fragment and the whole at the same time it seems exactly. Exactly. um there's this um, wonderful paradox encapsulated uh you may or may not know but my work is on the Devi Mahatmya. so the goddess the goddess myths um there's uh there are four hymns in the text the um, yeah exactly. The, sec- the second one is a, a very beautiful hymn and um, the Shakradi stuti. Yeah. And one one of the pairs of couplets in this elegant hymn basically says, yeah. you know, the Devi the Devi they say to the they are they're, they're addressing her they're, they basically say your your face is so beautiful it's resplendent like the moon. How mm-hmm. could the 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 uh, how could the the asuras um, dare strike it and the next verse say but also how could they survive beholding the enraged face of death? And you have the sense that to be totality, uh, she's life as well as death, but not, de- death, de- not a death that negates life, but a death that is somehow uh, part of life. Exactly, part of life,
0: and you know another thing is very interesting, and this is what I have also argued in this book. Uh, it's very good that you have brought in this issue of the Devi Mahatmya, because in the Devi Mahatmya we have, uh, you know, this continuous reference to the paradoxical nature of Devi. So, and, and the interesting thing is that uh, when we talk about the enigma of Devi, we we basically um, uh, try to talk about the paradoxes of Devi. Probably, you know, the Devi cult in Hinduism is the most uh, paradoxical form of uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, figuration of the divine, the most paradoxical figuration of the divine. And uh, interestingly, as you have rightly pointed out, I mean, when we think about Devi, we find uh, her uh, embodying both the agency of life and the agency of death, you know. So she can kill, she can uh, bring something into life, she can bring something into life, and she can take that back. In fact, uh, yeah, as far as the um, uh, goddess Kamakya is concerned, uh, I mean, the, I'm, I'm talking about the Kamakya temple, the very famous Kamakya temple of Assam in India. Uh, as far as uh, the myth of uh, goddess Kamakya or rather the folk narratives regarding goddess Kamakya are concerned. There is the idea that uh, there used to be uh, one particular group of people who would uh, who would uh, sort of mystically hear, The summons of the Devi. The Devi was called Ai in that context. So it was supposed that they would uh, hear this mystic uh, sort of call of the Devi and then they would go to uh, uh, the temple and they would offer themselves to be sacrificed in front of Devi. You know, so so it's a very peculiar kind of situation where you have a kind of voluntary uh, human sacrifice where the human being is uh, willing to sacrifice in his own life for the sake of the baby. Uh, And interestingly, here the idea is that Devi can uh, give the life and Devi also has uh, the right to take back that life. And it's basically a very uh, powerful paradox. If you think about the entire uh, uh, issue of bioethics or or eco-ethics, we are actually uh, trying to grapple with this issue, you know. I mean, uh, who has the right to create life and who has the uh, right to take back life? I mean, does anybody have really the uh, right to Take that life. Now the point is that uh, when we think about the goddess cult, we find that the goddess is not just the creatrix of life and the destroyer of life, but rather she is also the creatrix and the corpse at once. You know, so she herself is the corpse, as it were. She doesn't kill simply the uh, the life forms which she has created, but she can also kill her own embodied living form you know, which we find also in the image of goddess Shinnamasta, for instance.
1: Yes, this fearful, this fearsome goddess who decapitates herself. Yes, exactly. yeah. um So there's so many, so many, so many things that come to mind. I visited the, the Kamakya temple once. This must have been in 2012 in Assam, okay. correct? Yeah, and, it's in Assam. Yeah. And so in growing up, um, Probably with most folks who had a, a Hindu background, I didn't have a particularly religious upbringing at all. But my home was Hindu in the way that many uh, modern Catholics uh, practice Catholicism, where they may uh, they may go to mass on Easter or Good Friday type thing. Nevertheless, the the the, the 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 value system was was part of the the ethos of the home, and and so. Um, we had a, a non-vegetarian home, but one would never eat meat on a religious holiday. One would one would never eat meat going to temple. So this association with religiosity and vegetarianism, or conversely, this idea of um, you know the, the carnage of of eating meat, uh, being polluting to a sacrifice, right? So it it fosters a sensitivity such that I think most of us have this where we may quite enjoy uh, chicken, but maybe not after passing by a butcher shop and seeing chickens hung upside down in the window because then it's it's a little too close to home. And so I had this very powerful experience where something really shifted in my consciousness because I did not know until having arrived there. I was just, I... It was after a barrage of language training at the uh, American Institute of Indian Studies in Pune. Then I thought to visit some, some, some sites before coming back to Toronto. Okay. And I did not realize that they actually sacrificed animals at this temple. And I saw, I saw, a, I saw a platter upon which there was the, the head of um, a buffalo. In fact. Uh-huh. And usually usually such a sight would be very, very jarring for me because I'm very sensitive to, to roadkill or, exactly. or carnage. But in that moment it was so beautifully, like aesthetically pleasing. It was so beautifully put together on this platter. It was stunning. It was this it was this moment of seeing seeing something sublimely beautiful and also a decapitated head at the same time. And it was, it was a moment where it was like the the commingling of opposites. Right. And so I wouldn't have thought impossible to, to behold the head of an animal and have such an aesthetic experience. um, Unless I'd visited this temple and happened to see them uh, bring out the offering right before um, Darshan. So it's, it's quite something. It is quite something, this paradox of life and death. It's It's, uh, another, another thought that comes to mind is I often, go back to this this notion of transformation that, that life and yeah. death being two poles in this ongoing uh transformative power of nature that devi is associated with that nature eats itself to to propel itself it's, and yet when you talk about shiva as a corpse it's very very different i mean i, mean, I think your point is valid um so what's what is um we have taken a fair bit of your time for today what is the next project what is what is the you know, what's the next step what are you working on now you know,
0: I am now working on uh, the history of uh, the authoritative female speeches in the goddess traditions of India. Particularly, I am trying to focus on uh, the, the very long and very rich tradition of speeches uh, coming from women, goddesses, female gurus, or or even, you know, the wise wives of, of, of sort of... Uh, not so spiritually enlightened husbands now this entire uh, sort of um, corpus of writing uh, which which is there in fact which is there in the hindu traditions uh, i mean this uh, entire corpus uh, is something which we need to look back at because at the present moment we are hearing a lot of debates regarding uh, you know regarding the very uh, very significance of the position of the speaking woman in a patriarchal society. For instance, if you think about the center discourse about women's planning and all that. Now, uh, what is basically being sought to be foregrounded is that somehow the female speech doesn't have that amount of that kind of access to the public sphere, which the male speech has. Now, in this context, I'm trying to revisit the, the Indian traditions of God's spirituality, where I have uh, this this very uh, important, very significant corpus of writings. Uh, and, and these writings involve all kinds of writing, like you know, philosophical discourses, narratives, stories, narratives, um, encapsulating philosophical discourses. For instance, there are certain narratives of wise women, I mean, spiritually enlightened women who are spiritually enlightening their husbands. So that kind of narrative is there in the very famous Tripura Rasa. So I'm also dealing with that. And I'm also trying to um, uh, find out the possible connections between the co-configuration of Vidya on knowledge and, um, and the feminine and the Probable connections between this composite form of vidya and the feminine or vidya as some feminine entity and uh, and women speakers speakers who are uh, I mean who are mortal women who are not goddesses but who are mortal women and still they might have some kind of connection with uh, the goddess traditions of India. So I'm trying to explore that. That is my present project. And and actually it's a recuperative project whereby I'm trying to link the past uh, sort of histories, the past narratives with the present narratives. For instance, what kind of uh, authority do we find uh, in the speeches of the female gurus of the 20th century? in many cases these female gurus for instance if you think about Ananda Boima or even Masarada uh, i mean uh, the wife of Ramakrishna Paramahansa uh, you find that in these cases their speeches have a peculiar kind of authority which is uh, which is uh, connected not just to their status as female gurus, but also to their status as as uh, as the avatars of the goddess, because they were seen by their devotees as the avatars of the goddess. So, what kind of connection can you build between these, uh, these apparently uh, sort of disconnected uh, cultural phenomena? That that's my present project.
1: That sounds fascinating. I'll ask you one quick question about your project, because it's something that comes up a fair bit in my thinking. And that is, um, when you have a figure like Ananda uh, Maima of the last century, or even Amrita uh, Ananda uh of this century, comparable in various ways, um, and they're venerated because of their, their spiritual authority uh, and their attainment, now, here's a question, and maybe it's too early to answer from your research, but is your sense that we can begin to um, equate women as, as goddesses in the Hindu tradition, or goddesses something very, very different than humans, much less human women, what do you think?
0: Now, see, uh, uh, I am very happy, Raj, that you have brought in this question because uh, this is one of the most uh, vexed uh, sort of areas in the discussions of God's spirituality as far as the Indian goddess traditions are concerned. For instance, recently, um, Mandakranta Bose has also uh, sort of published this book uh, on Devi. She has edited a lot of very important essays which uh, deal with this question, what was the position of women vis-a-vis this, uh, this hallowed figure of the goddess? So was there really a direct connection between the uh, the empowered figure of the goddess and, and the women, the mortal women, or uh, was there a kind of uh, paradox uh, relationship between the uh, powerful goddess and the disempowered woman. Now, my uh, uh, approach to this issue is something like that, uh, like this. But when we think about uh, the possibility of a direct connection between the disempowered, uh, I mean, the uh, woman, the mortal woman and the goddess, the divine uh, female, uh, we, we, we probably don't find a direct connection, you know. So, so it's not that women's empowerment in the Indian context directly proceeds from uh, the figuration of the powerful goddess. That that is not the case. But at the same time, I would not uh, like to endorse the idea that there has not been any connection. Between the, goddess tradi- between the goddess traditions of India and, uh, and women's empowerment in limited contexts. So when we think about women's empowerment, we also need to think about the uh, context-specific definition of empowerment, right? For instance, in the context of, say, Ananda uh, Moima, we have one kind of empowerment. In the context of uh, probably the secular idea of women's empowerment, we have another idea of empowerment. So when we uh, are talking about women's empowerment in the context of uh, goddess spirituality in India, we need to pluralize the very definition of power and uh, empowerment as far as the gender equations uh, in any patriarchal society are concerned. Secondly, what I find quite interesting in this context is that uh, we first need to sort of excavate a lot of histories of uh, women who were empowered in their own ways, and this is what I'm trying to do. For instance, uh, when we think about the uh, the uh, the figures of apparently empowered women or apparently uh, wise, spiritually enlightened women in the P- Puranic and tantric texts, uh, we need. To understand that probably there was a kind of, um, you know, a a larger social and cultural spectrum within which these texts were implicated. So that spectrum is no more available to us. For instance, we don't know whether there was really a a kind of um, um, uh, a socio-cultural equivalent. Uh, of Amadalasa or say, or Chudala, we we don't know. But the point is that uh, to say that uh, these figures are just mythical figures uh, is something which is problematic for me, because uh, because this is uh, my conviction that, uh, I, and I do believe very strongly that. Uh, as far as the history of women's uh, uh, sort of voices uh, is concerned this history is always interrupted and more often than not this history is characterized by gaps by silences by uh, by what is uh, left uh, in the dark by what is not enunciated so when we think about the history of women uh, we need to think about not a history of enunciation, but rather a history of silences. But we also need to build up a new kind of hermeneutic framework to deal with uh, those apparent silences. For instance, it is quite possible that in terms of the societal reality, uh, there is an apparent silence. But as far as the texts are concerned, there are certain enunciations. Now, we need, to sort of dialectically negotiate with the silences uh, and uh, these speeches, which you find in the texts. And my PhD work, my own doctoral work was uh, on this question of Diotima, who figures in uh, in Plato's Symposium. And Socrates claims that uh, he learned um, his uh, own erotic philosophy from but there is a very long tradition of patriarchal scholarship, which uh, uh, which says that Diotima was not real; she was just a fiction of Socrates. But there is a, a very significant feminist corpus of writing, which argues very powerfully and very uh, convincingly that uh, Diotima was not unreal but rather it is the patriarchal tradition which has come to derealize her as Milena nikolchina puts it I, I think the same kind of idea uh, needs to be kept in mind when we think about the relationship between these goddess figures and uh, and the real women in the Indian traditions for instance uh, you know I personally know about a lot of stories uh, and not just stories but uh, but sort of uh, real uh, kind of narratives, um, uh, real, uh, real life women who who have uh, done something, which is not exactly the same as that which is there in codified uh, uh, orthodox Hindu religious systems. For instance, if you think about, uh, uh, I mean, I, I think you might be interested in this because you have worked on the Devi Mahatmya, your, your own book is on the Devi Mahatmya. So uh, as far as the Devi Mahatmya is concerned, in Bengal, there was a very long tradition of, um, of a kind of Brahminical uh, appropriation of the text and a very exclusionary kind of construction of uh, the ritual uh, of Chandipata or uh, the recitation of uh, the Chandi or the Devi Mahatmya, where um, uh, it was argued that women should not touch the Devi Mahatmya, that book, you know. But interestingly, even though uh, in the orthodox, codified religious system, you have this kind of idea, uh, there are a lot of real women. Some of them uh, are personally known to me. Uh, uh, there are uh, sort of written documents about some others. Uh, and these women have flouted these norms. They have uh, uh, ritualistically recited the Chandi for a long period of time. And uh, the Chandi on the Devi Mahatmya has been a source of spiritual inspiration to them. So uh, I personally believe that we need to look at these micro-narratives. Whenever we are confronted with uh, uh, with a moment of silence in the history of uh, uh, women in Hinduism, we need to look at the multiple layers of that silence, because I believe that as far as the silences uh, uh, are concerned uh, within the domain of uh, women's function in Hindu religiosity, I think all the silences are multi-layered. They are uh, immensely textured. So we need Look through these uh, these multiple layers of those silences. You know? So so that's my take on this particular issue, and that's the that's the hermeneutic uh, model which I'm trying to apply. Uh,
1: I mean, in my uh, current project as well. Surely, a nuanced take such as yours is required for so complex and controversial an issue. Because while on the one hand, we certainly cannot say um, that the goddess uh, is equatable to. Um, a Hindu woman or any woman. On the other hand, certainly these um, texts that feature the feminine divine have, without a doubt, pushed the envelope of inclusion of women in ritual practice in in the Hindu world. Just two short anecdotes. Um, I don't work. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't do ethnographic work. I'm not sure why that is because because I quite enjoy attending um, attending and studying as an armchair uh, ethnographer. Uh, these situations, but um, way back in my in my undergrad days, um, school was something I, I had to force myself to do when I wasn't socializing. <laughs> so the idea that I can get credit for socializing, <laughs> I didn't realize this was such a thing. But uh, two two very brief examples in my experience: uh, that you raise regarding the chanting of the chandi. Uh, one is um, when I, in the same year I was uh, last in India, twenty twelve. Uh, during my Sanskrit program, the I was staying uh, in an apartment complex owned by a, um, it was in Maharashtra, so it was, a, it was a Hindu Marathi family that I was staying across the hall from them in their in their complex. They they rented the the the, the, the unit was there for students coming, okay. um, and so this happened to be fall. I was there for the the entire fall. And during fall, of course, there's the big uh, Durga Puja where the Chandipat the, the yeah. is right. chanted. And um, the the auntie who was, who, you know, she was the, 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 the mother of the home. She, they, the family patroned um, someone to come in, folks to come in and chant the Chandipat. These folks that came in to chant it were two women, two relatively middle, middle-aged women who were initiated, initiated by somebody who had the authority to initiate it. Okay. And um, and uh, the auntie said, you know, well, uh, you know, if you want uh, Raj can chat along with you. He knows he knows the the the, the chandi part. <laughs> and it was so it was such a beautiful moment of reversal because they were saying, well, we don't know if he can. We don't know if, only if he's been initiated in the text. Otherwise, we're not allowed to chat with somebody who hasn't been initiated. <laughs> I, I found it. I found it absolutely brilliant. Um, the other the other example, an, an entire world away in the Richmond, Hills, yeah. the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple, just uh, about an hour north of Toronto. It's uh, the, the, Tam, uh, the Tamil-speaking community primarily, South Indian-style uh, Hinduism. So a lot yeah. there, for example, the food, the language, the dress, some uh, the festivals are very, very foreign to me. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah. as lost as just about anybody coming in from Toronto. And yet, of course, you know, elements of the puja and the Sanskrit are very familiar. And so every yeah. year they have um, a huge um fire c- ceremony a uh, uh, yajna for the for the devi for 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 durga puja and okay. people people come along you know the the it's only the priests obviously that handle the Mortis or, or or make the official oblations yeah. but people come along anyone's invited to come along and bring their chandi and chant and the majority of folks that come out are women and they okay. ch- they okay. chant along for that the ritual isn't... it's it's it really is fascinating it struck me at the time it's but really i don't nice. i didn't have the background at to know
0: i think Raj, I am also working on certain forms of uh, I mean, Hindu practices as well as the pedagogies of Hindu studies in Canada. I, I actually, I uh, I mean, almost every year I am invited by Jadok University because they have this, uh, I mean, Canadian Studies Centre uh, that's a nodal centre as far as Eastern India is concerned. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, they are connected with the uh, Indo-Canadian Shastri Institute, I think the Shastri Institute for Indo-Canadian Studies. So, so I uh, go there, and uh, what I find very interesting about the, uh, the Hindu cultures in Canada is that uh, it, there is a very progressive reconfiguration of the, uh, the Hindu traditions in Canada. For instance, uh, you know there you have the temples where you have multiple deities. So here you have not just one deity, but the different deities are there. And people can go there, people from different uh, sort of faith uh, groups, different uh, uh, sort of faith communities, like, you know, a shaiva can go to the same temple, the, uh, the shakta can go to the same temple, etc. And as you rightly point out, I mean, this, uh, this freedom that, you know, anyone can bring the scripture with him or her and can recite it. So that Kind of flexibility and that kind of freedom uh, is what probably characterizes the, uh, the Hindu practices in Canada. And I'm particularly interested in the uh, in the practices of uh, Hinduism, I mean, how Hinduism is practiced in a very new way in Canada today, and also about the Hindu studies paradigms because I did a course uh, from the Oxford Centre of uh, Hindu Studies. Uh, I think I, I my tutor was Nick Sutton at that point of time. Uh, so. Uh, what you find interesting is that, uh, I mean, when you think about the Hindu studies paradigms and the Hindu studies programs, there are slight differences between the Canadian uh, frameworks of Hindu studies, uh, the American frameworks and the British frameworks. And, and I'm fascinated with, uh, with you know, these differences with these uh, sort of multiple uh, sort of pedagogical frameworks that you can build up for Hindu studies in India. Interestingly, there is actually no uh, sort of center for Hindu studies as such. Even in the uh, university, you don't have a center for Hindu studies, you know. So it, it, there you have a kind of interdisciplinary center for Indic studies. You have a, 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 a center for Sanskrit knowledge systems. But the kind of Hindu studies that uh, suppose you are doing, I am doing, all, all that is being done, uh, I mean, sort of... Uh, I mean in in today's uh, academia, uh, that is not systematically done here, but I think in India too we can build up some cultural studies frameworks so or some kind of you know some kind of autoethnographic frameworks for doing this. For instance when I was visiting all I mean these different Shakti I was also trying to wed ethnography to textual studies because that that was absolutely required because as I've already told you Uh, Sometimes what the text says and what the practitioner does in reality are poles apart. you know, so the Tantric text would tell you something, but uh, the Tantric practitioner would uh, tell you something else because uh, uh, that practitioner has probably gone through an experience which is not encoded uh, in the Tantric text. So this text and uh, sort of living culture interface is very important as far as my own methodology is concerned.
1: And I I think that's also the case with you, I guess. Well, there's no doubt that there's no doubt in my mind that especially in in Indian religions where um, there's so much emphasis on a parampara, sampadaya, oral transmission, Mm -hmm. that um, the text, a great example is uh, the Yoga Sutras they're, they're exactly. skeletal, You, they're absolutely skeletal. Anybody who sits down and tries to understand them outside exactly. of a living tradition, uh, I'm not sure what they're trying to understand uh, because the text was not ever meant to be read as we would read a text off of a shelf in the West it was meant to be ex- exposited by someone, um, this is probably much more the case in tantric practices, where there are um, theres where there is a fair bit of secrecy and esotericism and, and a cult, uh practice and so
0: And you know, also the involvement of the body, which is very interesting, which is also the case with the uh, yoga sutras, for instance, I mean, let me put it in this way. I mean, with every living body practicing the yoga in a way, uh, everyone is breathing a new kind of uh, life into the yoga sutra because everyone's breath is operating in a unique way in a different way so you can't actually homogenize the ways the breath uh, operates in a human body probably the mode of operation of the breath in the human body is very different from one uh, living human body to another and in tantra too the same thing is happening so for instance when we think about this body oriented uh, uh, rituals or the rituals which require some kind of uh, physical involvement. Uh, the interesting thing is that every human body is probably rewriting the text in a way, right. I mean it is putting a new kind of flesh uh, to, uh, I mean onto that text, that skeletal framework of the text.
1: Well, the favorite analogy that I have that comes to mind—there's two analogies that come to mind a lot when I teach and think about this, remind myself about this—but my favorite analogy is uh, I was a classically trained musician throughout my teenage years until about that's when I went good. to university. I I switched to uh, to English uh, as a major focus, but um, but there's there's so much to be taught and learned about music theory and a music score. I mean, there's I mean that's that's necessary. Having said that, the music theorist. Um, yeah may or may not be tone deaf. They may or may not have ever uh, experienced the musical phrase. Um, exactly. There are different experiences such that you can play a guitar. You don't need lungs to play a guitar, <laughs> but there are other, there are other instruments where the breath is very much intertwined with yeah. the, with the production of sound. And so, so musicality is my favorite example in terms of like a, an experience. Exactly. Um, and also you have, when you have a, a perfectly canon work, say a, uh, I don't know, say a Mozart concerto, you're going to have every single, uh, say it's a, a violin concerto, the the violin virtuoso is going to have his individual stamp on that concerto. The conductor conducting the audience is going to give his individual stamp on that concerto. Although the, the arrangement and the scoring is precisely as we see in the written text. And so that's one of my favorite examples to... Um, it's to, a, draw, to draw It's on. a
0: very apt example.
1: Yeah, it's a very appropriate example actually because, you know,
0: this, this kind of performative aspect of religion is very important as far as Hinduism is concerned. I mean, it's, more oriented towards uh, the, pra- the practice. You know, that's why we always uh, talk about the sadhakas, the practitioners, not just about the ritualists you know, who are performing the rituals, but also, uh, I, mean, I mean, we are more uh, sort of interested in those who are performing the sadhana, who, who is doing this kind of internalized uh, uh, kind of spiritual performance. So that's very important. And it's also important to map the history of this performative dimension of Hinduism, as far as Hindu studies is concerned. And and that's what I try to do. Uh, you know, I try to look at the interface. Uh, sometimes this kind of interface is quite evident. Sometimes it's not so uh, overt. Uh, but uh, we need to excavate and decode these, uh, these, uh, these points of interface between uh, the performative aspect and the textual aspect of a particular Hindu uh, cultural or religious tradition, that's what I feel.
1: Um, absolutely. Uh, there's another, um, there's one other point that I'd like to touch on before I close, because certainly it's uh, fairly late where you are. You were quite a few hours ahead of me. You're located in India right now. Not only is there a difference between the embodied or performative aspect and the textual traditions, but within what we see on paper, it's very different, as you alluded to earlier in our interview, uh, sutra or treatise is very different from the narrative text it's it's much more difficult to access but also much more powerfully encoded when the philosophy is in the narrative and this is maybe one thing you could touch on i mean you probably would agree that the the narrative is is uh, the narr the the narrative is crafted so as to embody deep profound philosophy but in a very unassuming way this has been my exactly. sort of what I found to be true, and maybe you could maybe you could um, make a remark about narrative in your work, and, and the extent to which you have, for example, um, uh, philosophical uh, philosophical exposition in Kashmiri Shaivism or Sri Vidya. But in the, in the in the the traditions you're looking at, you're literally decoding stories. Maybe you could make a comment about that before we close. Exactly. Actually, you know, uh,
0: when I look at the uh, uh, traditions of Tantra practiced in uh, the eastern parts of India, I find that the stories are very important. Now, uh, uh, we can uh, divide these narratives into multiple categories. For instance, on the one hand, you have the uh, Sanskritic Texts which have, uh, uh, which include these stories, the Puranic texts or, or even the Tantric texts. So for instance, um, when we think about the by Yogini Tantra, uh, that includes uh, certain narratives. Uh, But on the other hand, we also have the folk narratives. For instance, a particular Puranic story may get transformed into very uh, different kinds of folk narratives. And that's why in this text, uh, and probably you have noticed this, I have also dealt with the vernacular narratives, like the Bengali narrative. Then I have also dealt with the the kind of sthalapuranas, the the local narratives, the local mythologies, which are are there in these different... uh, uh, sort of eco-theological centers of Shaktism, uh, for instance, when we think about a particular temple, uh, for instance, if you think about Kamakya, or if you think about any other Shaktivit in, in, uh, in West Bengal, you find that each of them has a folk narrative associated with them. Now, that folk narrative may or may not be directly connected to the Sanskritic narrative tradition. So that means that uh, when we look at uh, these uh, frames of goddess spirituality within the tantric traditions, we need to take into account both the folk and vernacular traditions and the Sanskritic traditions. Now, they have uh, different narrative traditions. For instance, uh, uh, in uh, in one particular context, while talking about uh, the goddess Kamakya in this book. I have uh, tried to look at the possible connections between the folk narratives regarding Kamakhya and uh, the Sanskritic tradition. Now, you know, I am particularly not interested in a kind of genealogical um, or, or or a kind of uh, historiographical uh, uh, study where I uh, will just focus on the the possible uh, origination of uh, the Sanskritic text uh, uh, in the folk traditions or vice versa. I'm not interested in that because... So it's very difficult to make any decisive comment about about uh, the possible uh, the possible uh, genealogies. You know, I mean, whether the folk tradition uh, inflected the Sanskrit tradition or vice versa. I, I really don't know whether we can at all reach any decisive uh, sort of uh, point uh, regarding that. But uh, what I find interesting is that uh, between the Sanskritic tradition and the folk, or the, uh, I mean, or, and the folk narrative traditions, there is some kind of commonality, some kind of connection. And as far as the practice and performed uh, uh, religion is concerned, uh, we can find the traces of both the folk traditions and the Sanskrit traditions there. And that kind of amalgamation is what I'm hugely interested in. So this is one thing. Then secondly, as you are absolutely right, uh, uh, while dealing with such traditions, we need to pay great attention to to the narratives. Uh, I mean, the framings of these narratives, you, you have uh, worked on the frames of the narratives. So the uh, the framing of the narrative is also very important. And uh, it, it would be absolutely wrong to believe that the frame uh, functions in the Indic narrative traditions simply as an introduction or as an entry point to the main story. They, they are more than that. And uh, in fact, the way you are worked on the frame narratives, I have also worked on the frame narratives, particularly in my present work, I am trying to look at uh, the frame stories and uh, the the narratives which are located within that larger narrative framework. Uh, So the macro narrative structure and the micro narratives, which are, as it were, engrafted into that that larger narrative structure. So this is what I'm trying to uh, look at. And uh, another interesting thing is that when we uh, try to look at the narratives, we find that uh, they are probably presenting something which you can call philosophy in action. So it's not just a a theoretical uh, philosophy. It's not just a doctrine, but it's more than that. It's how you are supposed to live. So it's it's something which you can also relate to the idea of yana you know yana in the sense of mahayana hinayana etc uh, where yana means uh, the way of life so basically here you find a way of life a way of living a way of dying also in the case of uh, the certificates for instance how to uh, negotiate with this concept of death as absolute closure and uh, the concept of death as as an entry point to a new form of life a new modality of living so uh, I think that when we look at the narratives, we need to be very cautious. Number one, we we can never make a generalized statement like, you know, uh, we can never make a statement like the goddess uh, is essentially empowering for the Hindu women, nor can we make a sweeping uh, generalization regarding um, the absolute disconnect between the uh, powerful goddess and the disempowered women in Hinduism. I personally believe that uh, no generalized statement would that kind of philosophical discourse, which I, we can uh, sort of build from uh, from the perspective of these narratives, would be uh, uh, quite context specific, quite context sensitive. It would not be a kind of generalized philosophical or theoretical framework. And secondly, it would be something which would be grounded in the in the multiple uh, sort of um, uh, narrative dynamics in the various kinds narrative dynamics which constitute uh, the magic of a text. For instance, a text may uh, tell you something, but it can also undercut that very statement made by itself. So I think all these different uh, nuances of a text, particularly a narrative text in the context of uh, the Puranas or even the folk narratives, I think that kind of nuanced reading, that kind of attentive, uh, close reading is very important. And then uh, it's also necessary to look at how this narrative is getting, uh, as it were, enacted or lived by the people who are practicing that particular religious system, uh, and to look at the ways in which these narratives are being worked on or uh, how they are being reworked by the the, uh, practitioners of that religion. So, So my focus is basically on the narrative as it is, but also uh, on uh, the reception of that narrative and the reworking of that narrative by, uh, by the people who, who
1: practice that particular religion. Definitely fascinating work. Uh, today we have been speaking with Anway Mukhopadhyay of the University of Burdwan in West Bengal. Uh, we've been speaking with him on his new Rutledge publication, The Goddess in Hindu Tantric Traditions, Devius Corpse. It's been a pleasure having you uh for this interview.
0: Thank you so much, Raj. It was a pleasure to uh, talk to you uh, regarding so many issues. And uh, it, it's really a very enriching experience for me as well to know about all these things.
1: <laughs> Thank wonderful. You so. Wonderful. And so for all of you out there listening, until next time, keep reading. Take care.